Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's been uh, 54 years since uh, Pope Paul VI gave us uh, Humanae Vitae. Uh, again, it was uh, one of the most important events uh, since the Second Vatican Council. And uh, many people uh, actually believe that uh, it was a major mistake which alienated Catholics from uh, the teaching authority of the Church. Nevertheless, uh, the teaching of Humanae Vitae has been reaffirmed. Um, St. John Paul II uh, did so uh, in m- multiple occasions, but of course in Veritatis Splendor, in Evangelium Vitae. And many people have also pointed out that if you read Humanae Vitae today and look at the, n- the negative consequences listed by Pope Paul VI, the negative consequences that would flow from separating the, um, the two ends of the marital act, procreation and uh, intimacy or the unit of act, separate those, you're going to have bad things happen. And a lot of those bad things have happened uh, since the publication of Humanae Vitae. Join me right now to talk about uh, why Humanae Vitae was right and uh, how we can appreciate what it teaches. We've got Dr. John Grabowski. He's professor of moral theology and ethics at the Catholic University of America. He and his wife were approved to serve as a member couple of the Pontifical Council for the Family in 2009, and he's in his third term as theological advisor to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, and Youth. He's the author of several books, including Raising Catholic Kids for Their Vocations and, more recently, Unraveling Gender. John, good to have you back here. Thank you. Great to be with you, Al. Thank you for having me. Uh, Had a bit of a curveball thrown at me uh, earlier today, which I'll I'll throw your way as well, and that is the publication of this new book from the Pontifical Academy for Life called Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, Practical Challenges. Now, it's in Italian. I don't think there's an English uh, version of it yet. But I'm just curious to know if there's anything you want to say about it to the degree that you've been able to, you know, think about it. Sure. Um, So first, a disclaimer. I have not read the book. I have read some key excerpts in translation, um, which seem to be accurate from the original text. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, in the interest of full disclosure, I was actually invited to the symposium that produced this document, but I was unable to attend because uh, one of my daughters was getting married. Oh, that's a good reason. (laughs) But but I thought so, and my daughter certainly thought so, but... (laughs) Looking at the list of attendees, both then and now, I could see I would have been a distinct minority in terms of my views on this issue and on the encyclical. So, Mm. I mean, I think I might have been invited in order to check a certain box, if you will. Gotcha. Um, Gotcha. So, those things said, um, you know, this document clearly, I, I mean, it, it, it seems like many of the authors who have contributed at this symposium think, think that it is still 1966. Yeah. Think that yep. this is an open question that we're, we are debating. I, I don't think it is. I, I mean, some, some theologians have actually argued that the teaching of Humanae Vitae can be considered infallible. Right. I, I don't know if I agree with that, 
but I think it's clearly definitive. Mm-hmm. It's, there, this is no longer an open question. St. John Paul II said this teaching isn't just based on human reason or the natural law. It's based on biblical revelation, and the Church has no authority to change biblical revelation. She can only hand it on. Right. So this is a, this is a settled issue, um, but many of these authors don't seem to have understood that, yeah. and frankly, don't seem to have even paid attention to the teaching of Pope Francis himself on this issue, who has been as clear and as strong as Pope Paul VI. Yeah, yeah, he, he's certainly no relativist. Um, he does believe in moral absolutes and intrinsic moral and, evils. And in Amoris Laetitia 80 says, no act, genital act between husband and wife can refuse this meaning of fruitfulness, even when each act doesn't necessarily result in the generation of new life. So he clearly reaffirms unequivocally the teaching of Humana Vitae 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it, this, it, this puzzles me a bit, and I, because you hear oftentimes from people who represent uh, this position that somehow the church's teaching on this is, uh, you know, incomplete uh, it's not, or it's still open. They often argue that um, they want to help people form their consciences, and uh, and as though if the church has teachings that certain acts are intrinsically evil, that that somehow is a handicap to people properly forming their conscience. And I've never understood that. I mean, just my own own experience, I became a Catholic, unconvinced of the teaching of Humanae Vitae. I accepted Mm -hmm. it purely on the authority of the Church alone. (laughs) Because the Church had been right in so many other areas, uh, and I had been wrong. I thought, well... I'll, no, give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, give it the benefit of the doubt, and I'll have time to form my conscience. And sure mm-hmm. enough, uh, the the teaching became attractive. First of all, it became attractive to me. Be- mm-hmm. There was a beauty to it, almost an aesthetic mm-hmm. loveliness to it. And then yeah. the rationality of it began to affect me, so that now I'm more convinced of the teaching of Humanae Vitae than I was certainly at the beginning of my sure. return to the Church. What's wrong with the formation of conscience? The Church teaches uh, that masturbation is intrinsic evil. What's wrong with somebody saying, hmm, I'm not sure I get that, but let me continue thinking, praying, and uh, forming my conscience. And eventually, I'll not only be obeying that teaching, but I'll understand it as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, at times... We don't fully understand the reason for, reason for a teaching, and we have to, and we have to accept what the church gives us in a yeah. spirit of docility, not hostility. Right. And unfortunately, too many people have absor- absorbed kind of the uh, anti-authority attitude of our culture, so that anything anything that an authority says is an imposition on me and my freedom. And so, for p- people who kind of have drunk that cultural Kool Aid. Um, the idea of authoritative teaching is a constraint on freedom, and no. therefore it, it and conscience just becomes another cipher for personal autonomy. <laughs> that's right. um, yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and and, and it's, that's a completely false understanding of conscience. Conscience is our capacity to hear the voice of God 
speak to us in the depths of our heart, but to have a well-formed conscience, we have to be formed in the faith, we, which the Church hands on to us and presents to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's that's the way I see it too. Well, let's let's talk about Hubare Vitae. Let's let's talk sure. about the why it was so controversial when it came out. What was the setting in which Humanae Vitae... What was the problem to which Humanae Vitae was supposed to be the solution? Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, in, in so many ways, it was kind of a perfect storm of what was going on in both the Church and the culture, right? Mm, um, because yeah. you had this, the Industrial Revolution, which basically outsourced work from the family and within the space of a couple generations created the mindset that children are a burden, not a blessing. And so that actually led to the search for a better and more effective contraception, fueling the growing sexual revolution, which had its roots in the 19th century but exploded Mm -hmm. in the 20th century, um, and oral contraception in particular. And so... You had the, the so-called population that, bomb. That was another factor. Uh, the population bomb, the fears about overpopulation, the idea that women needed more control in order to be participants in the workforce. They mm-hmm. needed control of their fertility. All of these things played a role, and all of these things, and the fact that other Christian churches, beginning with the Anglican bishops at Lambeth in 1930, um, had basically accepted contraception and pro- approved it and said, yeah, we have to, we have to accept this change. Um, and the Catholic Church increasingly kind of stood alone on this issue right. and maintaining what had been the teaching of the Church from the beginning. Um, and so, but because of all of that going on and because of the change in the Church kind of unleashed by the Council, a lot of people in the Church expected, oh, the Obviously, this is just another older teaching that's going to be changed or updated um, in the light of all of these factors and the and the council. Um, and I mean, in some people's mind, the liturgy was going to change. So if the liturgy could change, anything could change. Um, <laughs> right. So there's this climate of expectation that, and then of course the the fact that a majority of the the study commission that the Pope. John the twenty third first, then Paul the sixth had appointed to study the issue, had come out well, they issued a secret report which got leaked, and so newspapers all over the world were reporting the Pope's hand picked commission of experts, a majority of them was recommending the teaching be be changed. Yeah. So that was in nineteen sixty six, and for two years there was nothing said by the church, and so priests who had been saying quietly in the confessional, the teaching will change, follow your conscience, started to say that from the pulpit. Mm. So when Humani Vitae came out in July of 1968, for people like that, it was a, it was a, it was a atomic explosion. It was, um, and it was greeted with howls of protest, both from inside and outside of the church. Um, but the church, as uh, a bishop who had a hand in both the council and in Humani Vitae, even though he couldn't be there for the final meetings of that commission, later pointed out, Carol Wojtyla, the church has always been a sign of contradiction. Yeah. This, yeah. And here's where you see it, yeah. where the church kind of stands up to where our culture has just gone off the rails. And in short, what is the teaching of Humani Vitae? Um, the teaching of Humanae Vitae is that each and every conjugal act within marriage has a twofold meaning of both 
procreation and union, self-gift, love. And if either of those meanings is thwarted or negated intentionally on the part of the couple, the meaning of the whole act, the goodness of the whole act is vitiated. Mm-hmm. Um, so every conjugal act within marriage has to maintain that twofold openness to life and to love. Very good. Hold it there if you would. John, we'll come back after the break and continue conversation. My guest, Dr. John Grabowski, we are looking at the anniversary of Humanae Vitae, 54 years uh, this week, and uh, we're going to continue on the other side of the break. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cressu. With me, Dr. John Grabowski. We are looking at uh, Humanae Vitae, the encyclical, I think the seventh encyclical of Pope Paul VI, and it was his last, if I remember correctly. Um, This is the encyclical which discusses the nature of the marital act, the conjugal act. And um, according to Paul VI, married love takes its origin from God, who is love, And from this basic dignity, uh, we learn that love is, in fact, total. Uh, uh, This very special form of friendship between husband and wife uh, actually share in the creation of a human being. And the two, the twin objectives or twin purposes of the marital act, uh, procreation and uh, Intimacy uh, cannot be separated. So the an act of contraception breaks apart those two uh, objectives, which are really one. And uh, by doing so, the act is no longer good, but is a form of evil. Uh, John, that non-Catholic Christians, friends of mine. They love Humanae Vitae in the sense that it elevates uh, and gets us to focus on the the seriousness and the beauty of the conjugal act, but they have a real hard time accepting that the uh, procreative dimension and the unitive dimension, you know, the reproductive dimension and the the intimacy dimension are... um, uh, are inextricably linked and cannot be separated. Uh, Mm -hmm. They say, look, it's two objectives. So, you know, maybe it's not as full uh, a good as having, um, you know, uncontracepted uh, marital intercourse. But Mm -hmm. how can it be an evil act? I love my wife. I want to give myself totally. She wants to give herself totally to me. But uh, mm-hmm. for reasons we have, we do not, ex- we do not want to be uh, open 
to an, a child at this time, and so we use some form of contraception. I still love my wife. She loves me. What's wrong with that? Hmm. Um, when I have this conversation with um, Protestant friends, um, I point out, I usually start by pointing out three things to them. One, whenever Scripture speaks of this, um, Scripture speaks of children as a gift and as kind of the, the natural fruit and purpose of intercourse. The first command that God gives human beings in Scripture is in yeah. the form of a blessing, but it's be fruitful and multiply, yeah. right? Yeah. Fill the earth and subdue it. Those are God's first directives to our to human beings in the pages of Scripture. Second, every major Christian teacher, all of the Protestant reformers, taught and understood that contraception was morally evil, right. um, that it was a wicked act. No major Christian teacher before the 20th century taught otherwise. It was not until the 20th century and the public relations campaign carried on by Margaret Sanger, the foundress of Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. that Christian churches began to change their teaching here. And number three, um, to go back to your words, Al, the way in which St. John Paul II expresses this, using the language and categories of Scripture, is that sexual union is a language of the body, it's a language of self-gift, right? Yeah. But yeah. if I say I'm going to give myself but not my fertility, right. or my wife says, I'll give myself, but not my fertility, then we are negating yeah. the meaning of that language which God has created, right? So we, it's, it, it speaks the language of the body falsely. Yeah. It interjects a falsehood because it says fertility can be subtracted from this, but fertility is an intrinsic part of who we are as men and women. It's a gift of God, mm -hmm. and it's not, we're not arbiters of that gift. Yeah. So I think Scripture, history, and just theological reflection make clear that this is basic biblical teaching. Yeah. I, think, I think this idea of withholding something of myself from my spouse yeah. is I found that I found that compelling once it finally dawned on me what was going on there um I said oh yeah I get it that makes, that makes sense I, I want to be giving my total self my whole self mm -hmm. uh and yet if I'm withholding my um you know fertility uh then we we have a problem here um yeah. let, let me let me ask you um this I don't want to spend too much time on the politics of this, but are we, yeah, are we doomed to have to fight fight this battle within the church itself for the rest of our lives? <laughs> it just, I want to get on with other things, you know. Some errors die hard, Al, um, <laughs> and I honestly do think that this anti-fertility strain. I mean, Pope Francis warns us in Gaudete et Exultate that Gnosticism is still yes. around within the Church. Very good, right? yeah. And this effort to um, kind of achieve salvation apart from the body or by overcoming the body, gender ideology does this in one way. Uh, gender ideology is in some ways the fruit of the contraceptive revolution, because we have taken kind of part of the telos and anchor of what it means to be a man or woman and subtracted it. And that has affected not just the way we relate to each other socially and sexually, it's affected our identity. 
It has destabilized our sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. And you see this especially young, among young people growing up in a, a culture where contraception is simply the norm. Right. In fact, let's, let's talk about the unintended negative consequences of contraception, because mm. uh, Pope Paul VI really does lay this out, and it, I think it's shocking to see how accurate he was. Tell us, what did he predict would be the consequences of widespread so in, use of artificial contraception? In Humani Vitae 17, he warned of a number of things very specifically, that there, there would be kind of a loss of um, morality in general, especially among young people. There would be a loss of respect for women on the part of men. And there was the danger that there would be government coercion um, of forced contraception, forced sterilization programs, which we see not just in China and India, but even here in the United States. So in on all of those points, and even critics of the teaching of the encyclical will admit that Pope Paul VI was prophetic yeah. in seeing where, kind of where this, where this could take our culture, and where it in fact has taken our culture, and the the past fifty plus years make clear just how accurate he was. Yeah. What I think he didn't see as clearly, but we're starting to understand now, is this kind of destabilization of our very concept of identity of what yes. it means to be a man or a woman. Right. That's kind of also one of the bitter fruits of the contraceptive revolution. Yeah. This all is going and what's so remarkable here is this is all going on during the heyday of the sexual revolution. And there's Paul VI, really a lonely voice. And yet today we look back and we say he got it right. And I, I agree with you. I think this does, uh, I think the fallout for this, he didn't see it, but this idea of the deconstruction of, of uh, sexuality and the idea mm-hmm. of gender as a merely a social construct. Uh, and, and, and an individual construct, increasingly. That's right. I, I, that's uh, right. It's not a social construct. It's my own. I assign myself right. my gender. Which yeah. is why we can have dozens and dozens and dozens of genders, because yeah. it's what, however I understand and articulate myself. Yeah. That's, that's, that's un- unbelievable. Uh, the... Do you have any sense of how, what percentage of active theologians who identify as Catholic, do you have any idea what percentage of them are champions or supporters or at least tolerable, tolerant of Humanae Vitae? Wow. I mean, I have not seen any kind of definitive studies or definitive numbers. I know the assumption is that among theologians, probably a majority of them are critical of the encyclical right. in one way or another, just like among Catholics in the United States. But I'm, I'm, I frankly, I'm curious about that, because in 2016, when the Wingard Institute um, issued a document in advance of the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, signed by a small group of Catholic scholars advocating that, the and they presented this to the United Nations, a Catholic think tank, and they argue that the Church should change its position on contraception, that it should get with the program of contraception, abortion, and so forth, and they had about a hundred signatures. 
we got wind of this happening. Janet Smith, of course, spearheaded this effort. Yes. And we pulled together in just a couple of weeks a statement with five times that many signatures Interesting. of scholars, doctors, theologians, philosophers, Catholic um, Catholic scholars. Um, we, ha- we had five times the signatures. We had more medical doctors sign the pro-humanibite statement in 2016 than they had signers of their entire document. Wow. So the idea that, you know, well, we just have to get with the zeitgeist of the times because the ship has sailed, and um, I don't think so. I yeah. think people who are really studying and paying attention, both medically, scientifically, as well as theologically, realize it is not 1966 anymore. Right, right, right. Uh, Pope Francis, uh, you pointed out, and others have too, that he has really uh, been, has warned very uh, clearly about this, quote, gender ideology. What, mm-hmm. When he says that, what is he thinking? What does he mean by gender ideology? He, it, this is Amoris Laetitia 56, among other places, but he talks about how and he's basically echoing things that have been said, for example, by Benedict XVI in his 2012 address to the Roman Curia. But the, the idea that we can construct our and articulate our own gender identity, that in the past, Benedict says, this was a role assigned to us by society, now we invent it for ourselves, um, this undoes the very concept of the family because... We reject our human nature, we reject the meaning of our bodies, we reject the fact that God made us in His image, male and female, and so we just become the authors of our own reality. Pope Francis echoes that very clearly, very strongly, and then adds a really important distinction. He says, we can distinguish between the social expression of sex difference, or gender, um, and biological sex, but we cannot separate them. They have to be linked. In other words, however we understand how we live out what it means to be a man or a woman in a particular culture has to be rooted in our body and in the the givenness of our sexed bodies. So Pope Francis, yeah, um, crystal clear on this issue, and like like his predecessor, Benedict XVI. One Quick question, because we're up just about out of time. Is there a direct line from the pill to Obergefell v. Hodges in gay marriage? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The o- Obergefell was simply the culture, the court catching up to where the culture had gone decades yeah. earlier. Yeah, very good, John. Wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, Al.